Well, it's the last day, and you're still here and still awake. <laughs> I, T.S. Eliot in Wasteland said that April is the cruelest month, and every administrator in the university knows that line. <laughs> because by the end of the year, everybody's exhausted, and students who haven't <coughs> transformed the world yet decide that in April, they need to transform the university. Uh, <laughs> so it's always an interesting month. Uh, but I, I've always thought that if you're still vertical by the end of April, that's a major accomplishment. So you're, you're still vertical, and it's the end of the conference, that's a major accomplishment. All right, well, let's start. So thank you for coming today. My name is Greg Sterling. I have had the pleasure of meeting many of you, but I hope you'll enjoy our session today. I want to start by reminding us of something we all know, and I'm going to give you just a few statistics. I don't want to put you to sleep with stats. But we're all deeply concerned about the state of Christianity in the world today. And what you always need to keep in mind is that what's happening is there are some tectonic shifts taking place and Christianity is moving largely from north to south and from west to east. Let me illustrate. In 1910, 66% of the world's Christians lived in Europe. In 2010, 26%. In 1910, one and a half percent of the world's Christians lived in Sub-Saharan Africa. In 2010, 24 percent, and by 2060, it is estimated that 42 percent will live in Sub-Saharan Africa. That means that uh, in the not too distant future, four out of every 10 Christians in the world may live in Sub-Saharan Africa. So, for those of us in North America, you know, I sometimes will have people say to me, well, aren't you worried that divinity schools are going to go out of existence? Well, no, I'm not really worried. 70% of Americans still think of themselves as Christians. And while that's much lower, I don't think there's any danger that Christianity is going to go away. Uh, and one third of the world's population considers themselves Christians. So, don't you know, don't be overwhelmed by the numbers that you sometimes see, but it's still a real cause for concern. And uh, some of you have been in churches that have gotten much smaller, and we all know churches that have gone out of existence, and I can name schools that have gone out of existence. In fact, all of us could do that uh, right here on the West Coast, affiliated with Churches of Christ. So we know this crisis. So one of the things it's doing is it's forcing us to rethink how do we understand what a church is? What is the church? How do we think of the church? Now I want to reverse that perspective for a minute and see if we can find some help for today by looking at the inverse of it. In the first century, we think there were about 60 million people who lived in the Roman Empire. That, that's a rough guess. And by the end of the first century, less than 1% of those would have been Christians. Less than 
By the fourth century, when we come to Constantine, maybe five to 10% of the Roman Empire would have been Christians. You have to remember that Constantine helped the numbers by marching his army into the sea and saying, you're baptized. Uh, um, But uh, it was relatively small. And what happened was as Christianity was born, it began as a strictly Jewish movement. And I think in the lifetime of Jesus, who announced the inbreaking of the kingdom of God, and in the immediate aftermath following his death and resurrection, everybody was Jewish who was a Christian. So this was not thought of as something separate from Judaism, but as a renewal of Judaism, as a type of restoration of Judaism to its true purpose. But then something happened. Gentiles started becoming Christians. And all of a sudden, you had a lot of people who were not kosher and not keeping kosher, sitting around in Christian assemblies and thought of themselves as Christians. And that generated the question, well, how do we think about this? What is this now? If, if we're not a Jewish restoration movement, a Jewish renewal movement, how do we think of what we are? And I suggested to you yesterday, that's what Ephesians is all about. This is what Ephesians is trying to address. So today, I would like to look in detail at this concept. What is it that, how do we think of the church as Ephesians presents it, and I'm using that to use Ephesians' term. So one of the things that's very interesting is to think about the difference between how Paul speaks of the church and how Ephesians thinks of the church, or speaks of the church. So in Paul's letters, there, you can argue that he wrote all 13. I don't care if you want to argue that. But there are seven that scholars say, virtually everybody says, are unambiguously Pauline. If you put them in chronological order, they're roughly 1 Thessalonians, Galatians, 1 Corinthians, and then you may put Philippians and Philemons there, or you may put them at the end, 2 Corinthians and Romans. And everyone accepts those. So let's just start with that. Some others may have been written by Paul as well, but that's, that's a start. In those letters, the word ecclesia appears 43 times. It almost always refers to a local community a local congregation, as we would say. So in four of those seven letters, Paul begins, Paul an apostle, etc., to the church at Corinth, the church of God at Corinth, or to the churches in Galatia. But referring to specific churches, when he uses it in the midst of a letter, it's almost always to an assembly. So you can think of the famous example from 1 Corinthians um, 11, when you come together in the ecclesia, uh, that's the local assembly. Now he can refer to more than one and then uses the plural, ecclesiae, churches, to the churches in Galatia. And he can also think about the church as a whole. So in 1 Corinthians, when he talks about the gifts that God has given, first apostles into the church, first apostles, then prophets, 
that's applied to a local church, but clearly when he says first apostles, then prophets, he's not just referring to the church of Corinth, he's referring to all churches. Yeah. All right, so that's how Paul uses it. Ephesians uses the word ecclesia nine times, never to a local church. Not one time. It's always to the whole of Christianity, as we would call it. So, what is a, uh, let's say, a background in Paul, but certainly not the foreground, becomes the sole concern in Ephesians. How do we think of what I, as a boy, and many of you probably learned to call the church universal versus the local church? At least that was the language that was always used when I was growing up. Uh, but the church as a whole. So what I want to do is to look at three texts with you. And the first one is the most important text. It's the one that is debated at the greatest length in modern scholarship. And I'll try to lay some of that out for you. The second one is a text that has been part of our tradition and at the heart of our tradition. Remember, we did begin as an ecumenical movement at the beginning of the 19th century. And this was of fundamental importance to us. And the last one is one that uh, is worth noting in a careful way. Uh, and I want to talk about that at the end. I'll talk about that with, I'll devote the least amount of time to this, but I do want to talk about it. So let's start with Ephesians 2. And I'm going to read this quickly just so that you have it in your mind fresh. And I want to ask you, where do the pronouns shift? You need to pay attention. So look at the personal pronouns, and where do they shift? Because they're going to shift. They'll shift twice. So then, remember that once you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision that is human-made in the flesh, that you were at that time without Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, stranger from the covenants of the promise, without hope and godless in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have become near through the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, who made both one, who have destroyed the dividing wall of the fence, who has abolished the hostility through his flesh, the law of commandments and regulations, so that he might create in himself the two into one new person, so making peace, and might reconcile both in one body to God through the cross by having slain the hostility in himself. He came and announced the good news of peace to you who are far away, and peace to those who are near. Because through him we both have access through one spirit to the Father. Therefore you are no longer strangers and resident aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the Holy Ones, saints, and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone, in whom the entire building is joined together and grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are built into a residence of God in the Spirit. All right. So, where do the pronouns shift? 
14, that's exactly right. So it's all second person plural in 11 through 13, and then in 14, all of a sudden you get a first person plural. And you hold that, there is a second person plural uh, in the, the next couple of verses down in verse 17, but it goes right back to the first plural. So 14 through 18 are first plural, and you go back to you, second plural, in 19 through 22. And the reason I think this is important is that's telling you what the structure is. So you start out, I'm going to talk about you, meaning all of us, the readers, and then there's an explanation, we, and then you go right back to the readers, you, in a direct way. So we're going to look in three sections, okay? That's clear? Mm -hmm. uh, I think it's always important to pay attention to the way texts are structured to understand the thought. So the first part of this text uses a, a device that Paul really liked to use. Uh, now, so if you see, this is the parallel in Colossians, which has been expanded significantly in Ephesians. You were then estranged, but now, so then, now. And what that contrast is about, every time Paul uses it, and as it's used in Ephesians, is to contrast a former way of life with the present way of life, a moral shift. So one of the things, this is the baptistry in the Duomo in Milan where Ambrose baptized Augustine. And I will never forget when I saw this, I looked at that and I thought, well, wait a minute. He immersed him. He didn't sprinkle him. <laughs> and he did. <laughs> uh, so this is where Ambrose immersed Augustine. I just... I guess in my mind it somehow assumed Augustine would have been sprinkled, but he was immersed, so that's why I'm showing you that. But anyway, uh, it represents the experience, and this text is going to be built on an understanding of what are the implications of our baptismal experience, our conversion experience. And it's then versus now. Okay, uh, so what about the then? This is the brothel in Pompeii. I elected not to show you the pictures on the inside. Those of you that have been there will know why. Uh, all right, so what does the author do? This is really interesting. The author, I think, uses Paul's statement about the privileges of being Israel in Romans 9 and then says, you didn't have any of these. So what, remember when Paul is wrestling with the question of how could he, I mean Romans 9, 10, and 11 are trying to address the question, Paul, you're running around the Roman Empire preaching this good news, and your own people don't accept it. So what kind of, a, what kind of good news is that when your own people reject your message? This is Paul's attempt to answer that. And he says, well, my own people, my, the Jews, have all kinds of privileges. We're Israelites, and then he lists these. We have the covenants and the promises. Uh, and of course, the promises are made to the ancestors. The covenants were the regulation or the relationship that the law helped to govern. 
So Israel, covenant, and promise. You didn't have any of that. That was all somebody else's. You didn't have that. Well, this is interesting to me, and I, I want to come back to it. But now uh, things have changed. Now you who are then far away have become near through the blood of Christ. And the word he's drawing from the language of Isaiah. Some of you will recognize that. Isaiah 57. Uh, and do you know what the word proselyte actually means? The noun? It literally means somebody who comes near. That's what it means. Somebody who comes pros to. Uh, so the idea is you who are once way over there have now come near to Israel. Now, the interesting thing about this description is uh, you who are Gentiles in the flesh, called uncircumcision. Circumcision is, after all, the sign of the covenant, right? Mm -hmm. So you didn't have the marks of identity that the Jewish people had. You didn't have their privileges. But now you've been made near. Well, what does that mean exactly? So if, if I'm thinking about this historically and thinking, okay, Gentiles, does this mean Gentiles have become Jews? What does it mean they didn't have these privileges the Jews had, and now somehow you've come near? So just hold on to that for a minute, and I'll come back to it in a, a little bit. All right, so that's the first part, all right? Second unit is this insertion to help explain this. Christ is our peace. Now, how is Christ our peace? There are four participles that explain how Christ is our peace uh, that are laid out in verses 14 through 18. Uh, the first one is he has made both one. Who are the both? Jew and Gentile. That's exactly right. So those two have now been made one. Second participle, who has destroyed the dividing wall of the fence. All right, now what is the fence? Well, there are different interpretations. And probably this is where how you date Ephesians might determine your understanding. So I'll give you two major interpretations. You can choose yours. Uh, those of you who know the Temple Mount, the Herodian Temple, the mound is about 20 acres. So if you've never seen it, it's a bit of a shock when you first see where the Dome of the Rock is. This is a big plaza. So what you want to think of is there's a big hill, and what Herod did is basically take a box of enormous stones and drop them around. I mean, they built them up, obviously. Then filled it in and made this enormous platform. And in the center of that platform, built the temple proper. But it's a huge complex. And it was understood as the holiest site for ancient Jews. And the degree of holiness depended on where you were in that space. Anyone could start from the south end. And if you ever go there and you want to walk where Jesus walked and be pretty sure you walk where Jesus walked, go to the southern end and walk on the steps. You can't go in 
from that end, but you could walk on those steps, and you'd be pretty sure, yes, Jesus once walked here. So uh, you would go in from the southern end typically and go into a big platform, and then around the sanctuary proper, what was called the Naas, the Huron, was the whole complex. It was modeled on a Roman temple complex. I mean, that's the basic model. But remember, Herod built it. Uh, so you had this big complex. There was a balustrade uh, that went around protecting the shrine proper, the temple proper. And on that balustrade were plaques. One was found, for example, in 1871. And it basically says, if you belong to another race other than Jews, and you go past this point, you will only have yourself to blame for your own death. And it's really interesting. The Romans did not allow conquered peoples the right of capital punishment. But in the Jewish war anyway, according to Josephus, Titus granted the Jews the right to execute somebody who went past that balustrade. Uh, so that, that was a pretty extraordinary right. But that mark, so some people think that this is in reference to that balustrade, it's using that. But if you're like me and you date Ephesians a little later, and that's all been destroyed, it's kind of ancient history now, then what is it? It's the law. It's the law itself. Do you know, do you ever hear the letter of Aristeas, the document that talks about how the Septuagint came into existence? In the letter of Aristeas, there's an exposition of the law, and there's a famous statement, and in fact, I wrote it down, so I'll just quote it to you. Our lawgiver fenced us around with impenetrable palisades and with iron walls so that we would not associate in any way with any of the other nations. We had a wall to keep us separate. And believe me, Romans and Greeks understood that wall was there. So Tacitus, the Roman historian, said about the Jews, he said, what we consider to be profane, they consider sacred, and what we hold as sacred, they treat as profane. Uh, so he said they just got everything all turned around. They couldn't understand why they wouldn't work on Shabbat or why they didn't eat pork. You know, there's a famous line in Josephus, uh, it would be safer to be Herod's hoose pig than his huias, his son, because he executed too many of his sons. So, uh, I mean, it just makes the point. Well, that's what people thought of Jews. They, they got this. So, if you date Ephesians later, then it's the law. And in fact, the very next statement suggests to me that that's probably the preferable interpretation because the next statement is, he has abolished the hostility through his flesh, the law of commandments in regulations. So Christ, now this is really strong. You know, Paul in Romans 7 says you die to the law. 2 Corinthians 3 is the strongest in those seven letters that we ever get where he talks about what's written on the ten the, the ten words, the two stones, are the death of ministry, or the ministry of death. 
which is pretty strong. But this is, it, it's been abolished. It's, it's gone. Uh, and the point of that is to say that what kept people like Tacitus looking down their noses at Jews and what kept Jews from engaging in the larger culture has all been done away. That's gone. And uh, it, it's a major statement. And then the fourth clause, he says, that the, he adds a couple things to this. He wants to create one new person. So making peace. So I wanna, I'm going to come back and talk about the one new person. Uh, and the fourth clause, he came and announced good news of peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. Isaiah 2, 52, 7 um, is the announcement of peace and those who are far away those who are near, Isaiah 57, 19, because through him we both have access through one spirit to the Father. All right, so there's no difference. You and I have the same experience. The same spirit comes to us in baptism. We're all the same. You, you cannot make a distinction because of that common experience. Now, third section. He turns to a little different image. He turns to the temple. And here I think, I'm not going to argue this today, I, I, this is my point yesterday, I think he's drawing on 1 Corinthians 3, although you could argue this, I mean, you see I put in bold the, the places where things are similar, but in Ephesians uh, 2, the point is, you're no longer strangers and resident aliens. You're not just you're not immigrants without status. You're citizens, uh, fellow citizens with the saints, part of the family, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as a chief cornerstone. Now, just quickly, uh, some of you will know this argument, but people debate whether cornerstone means the capstone that was the archway or the cornerstone in the very corner. I. I, I can't be sure. I don't really know. I tend to think it's the cornerstone. When you lay a foundation, the, there's one stone that is really critical. That first stone you lay had better be right, because if it's not right, everything else is going to be wrong. Uh, and I think that's what's in mind. But you can argue the capstone scholars do. Uh, but the point is that this building grows into a temple. Well, there's a picture of the temple which is now in the Israel Museum. Uh, if you've ever been there, by all means go to that museum and the first thing you should do is look at the model of Jerusalem. You need someone to help explain how those three different wall structures were built and when. Uh, but at any rate, that's the picture. And what he's saying is, this is gone and you're built into a new temple. Now, what strikes me about that is that if you think about the old temple, so Gentiles could only come so far, women could only come so far, Israelite men could only come so far, the priest could only go so far, and it was only the high priest once a year who could go all the way into the Holy of Holies. Now, we are the temple. <laughs> 
all of that's gone. That, that's all gone. We are now all God's new temple. That's what Christ has done. So, in thinking about this text, what makes it so impressive to me is that you start out with a description, I'm going to use a modern term now, and I'll come back to it, ethnic Israel. You weren't part of ethnic Israel. You were somebody else. Remember, if you're a Jew, there's a binary structure of people in the world. You're a Jew, or you're a, a goy. You belong to the goyim, the nations. All right? If you're a Greek, you're a Hellene, or a Barbaros. And all that meant was, when Greeks heard you speak, you just said, bar, 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 bar. So they said, you're a barbarian, because that's how you speak. The Romans came along and said, well, we're not Greeks, and we're not barbarians, so they made themselves a third race. And we can, we'll talk a little bit about this uh, a little later. But the author says, you're, you weren't that, but now... You are something new. What are you? You're one new person, and you're a temple. Now, what does that mean? Well, let's just hold on to it, and we'll come back and talk about it in a minute. Let me go to the second text. So, <clears throat> Ephesians is very carefully put together. And if you start in chapter 4, I mean, the first three chapters are the... I would say the theological argumentation, chapters 4 through 6 of the Paranesis. And you start out, and there are five sections of exhortation, moral exhortation, and each section begins with two words in Greek, un and peripateo, therefore and live, or walk, literally, but live. And they mark the beginning of each section. So therefore, live like this. So this is the first one of those uh, sections in the Paranesis. Uh, therefore, walk worthy is live, uh, literally walk worthy. And the interesting thing to me, it's the text is drawing on the list of virtues from Colossians 3. Now in Colossians 3, the text is put off this stuff that represents what you, the vices you once lived in before you became Christian, and put on new clothes as this drawing from changing garments in baptism. Uh, put on these virtues. So I, you see Plato only because Plato is one of the most famous people in the ancient world to talk about virtues. So that's why his bust is there. But look at the virtues that Ephesians starts with. With all humility, meekness, with patience, and the capacity to put up with one another. Mm -hmm. Now, why those virtues at the outset of chapter 4? That's exactly right. These are the virtues that we really haven't done too well with. I mean, I once served a church... I. I moved, this was in the Sacramento area, and before I moved there, at one point, there had been three churches of Christ within two blocks of each other. Mm -hmm. 
I mean, you know, I mean, how do you even bring a guest <laughs> to, to visit without being, you, you have to route them around the other way to avoid, you don't want to take them by the other churches. You know, it, it's kind of like I, when I lived in Indiana, there was a county road, and I used to love to drive on this road. At one end, this is within five miles of each other, there was an Amish meeting house, not used very often. No place for cars, only for buggies. And every once in a while, they would use it. You drive a little farther, farther, and there was a Mennonite church. And people would drive, but the men had the beards, the hats, they wore, well, I'm dressed appropriately today, black and white. Uh, so, uh, simple colors. Drove a little bit further, and there's the Church of the Brethren. They're just like the rest of us. Uh, but that's all the radical Anabaptist tradition from the Reformation. So, you know, we, we're not the only ones who've struggled with maintaining unity by any stretch. But one of the, these virtues are here because these are the virtues that we have to practice if we're to have unity. And it, it, we get into all kinds of trouble uh, when there's no humility and no patience and no ability to put up with one another. Things come apart. This is not an accident that those are the virtues that are chosen. And finally, love. So make a concerted effort to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. What did Christ do? Christ is our peace. He brought us into one. Now, you've got to have certain virtues to live like that. That's the point. The second part of this is a very famous passage, the seven ones. All of you know this passage. Uh, so, I, I'm going to back up just for a second. So, there is one body, one spirit. This sounds like 1 Corinthians 12. Uh, the point is, through that one spirit, we have access into one body. We all have the same experience. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And for those of you that don't read Greek, this is just a little footnote that you might enjoy. Heis kurios mia pistis hin baptisma. Masculine one, feminine one, neuter one. All three genders laid out in this line. It's just a very nice play. It's, it's a way of suggesting we've got all the bases covered. Uh, so one, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and then this famous statement, one God, even the Father of all, who is above all things and through all things and in all things. And if you're a minister and you like to be rhetorical, you love things like these prepositional phrases, above all things, through all things, in all things. It's pretty elegant. Well, where does this come from? Well, let me explain something. I, I mean, I think, I think that 1 Corinthians 8 is in the background, but I want to explain something. I have a coin in my hand, um, and when I roll it across this table, why does it roll? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm pushing it, but... If I did the same motion with this, what would happen? It wouldn't roll. Why not? It's the shape. So there's a form. But suppose we were down at the beach 
in the sand and I did this to the coin, what would happen? Nothing. Nothing. <laughs> Boom. It would stop right there. So it's also this surface. It's a fact that it's a hard and flat surface. The, the point that I want to make is that why things happen depends on multiple causes. Aristotle understood that, and he developed a theory of what we call four causes. So cause number one is the material. The, the faint, most famous illustration was a statue. Cause number one was the material. What's it made out of? Well, bronze, or you could have stone, marble. Then you've got to have a sculpture. You've got to have an efficient cause, somebody to actually bring it into existence. But you need a form. Well, what's the statue of? Is it a person? Is it an animal? What, is it a chariot? What are you going to make? And then you need a reason. Why are you doing it? Where are you going to put it? How is it going to be used? Those are his four causes. And philosophers then took these causes and attached prepositions to them. And then debated, you know, how many causes are there? What preposition should you use, etc., etc.? Um, they're no, ancient philosophers are no different than modern scholars who like to argue and uh, think about things. So if you're a Stoic philosopher, you're what we could describe ultimately as a monist, meaning ultimately everything is God. That is, God pervades everything and fills everything. And God is material for the Stoic. So different than how we would think of God. And Seneca lays this out in his 65th letter that is the, the whole debate. But Marcus Aurelius said this about uh, God. All things are from you, all things are in you, and all things are for you. So if you're a Stoic, you just say, well, God is above all, through all, and in all. I mean, you could be a Stoic and say that. If you look at 1 Corinthians 8, one difference is one Lord Jesus Christ through whom? So if you were a Platonist, you would say, well, at this point in time, God is transcendent. God is above everything. And you cannot really know God. You know that God exists, but you can't say anything concrete about God other than he exists. You can describe things, but you don't really know God. So God is acted by means of an intermediary. And for someone like Philo of Alexandria or Plutarch, that intermediary is the Logos. Have you ever heard John in the beginning was the Logos, the word? All right. It's, I mean, it's the same kind of thought that you have. So I think early Christians <coughs> knew these kinds of debates. They weren't technical philosophers. Just like you've heard of the term nuclear fission and nuclear fusion, and if I asked you to explain the difference, somebody might say one's hot and one's cold, and past that I doubt I'd get too far unless you're a physicist or remember your uh, science better than, my, your physics better than I would. <laughs> I wouldn't be able to follow you very far. Uh, but they knew what these were. So in different texts, you have these used. But here, you have a text which simply celebrates God as 
overall. All right? But that's where it comes from. The point is, is that in this unity, we are all part of God. And, and that has to be appreciated. Last text, and then we'll open the floor. The Bride of Christ. So after these five sections where you get an exhortation, therefore, live like this, you get what's called a household code. And I think most of you know this. I'm hoping you do. And it goes back to Aristotle, who in the politics said, let's start thinking about the political structure by looking at the smallest unit. And the smallest unit is the family. So he said, there are male citizens. And he's a good chauvinist. He's an Athenian male. Uh, and he said, uh, a, a man has three relationships. He has slaves, he has a wife, and he has children. And that's how he described them. From that, developed a whole body of writings called household management. And we have a good number of these in different traditions. Uh, in Italy, Philodemus, who was an Epicurean, wrote a 10-volume work on ethics, and volume 9 is on household management. You can read Plutarch's Advice to a Young Bride. You know, uh, there are lots of these around. Jews took these over. Christians took them over. And in Ephesians, there are three relationships, just like in, a, in Aristotle. Only, the, there are several interesting things. First, Aristotle doesn't ever preface his with be subject to one another. That's one interesting twist. Another interesting twist is in Ephesians, it's always the one who is subordinate who starts. So it's wives, and then it's children, and then it's slaves, rather than in Aristotle with the man, and then the slaves, the man, and then the wife, and the man, and the children. You just reverse the sequence. But what interests me, we could talk about this if you want, is not so much the incorporation of the household code, but what this household code does is allegorizes the husband-wife relationship in terms of Christ and the church. Now, why in the world would you take a household code and give an allegorical interpretation of the husband-wife relationship. Well, Paul did talk about how he might present the Corinthians as a pure bride, remember? I mean, so there, there is something in the Pauline tradition about that. But I think that what really is lying behind this, more than anything else, is what happens at the end when the author cites Genesis 2 and talks about oneness. Uh, and that's what's driving this. It's because there's an intimacy between Christ and the church, the head and the body, as one that the author wants to emphasize. And that's why we have this allegorical interpretation of a household code. Okay. Now let me try to put all, all of this together if I can. And then let you have a, a go at all of this. <laughs> um, so what, what can we say? 
in modern scholarship, there's been a huge debate about how the church is understood in Ephesians in terms of ethnicity. And there have been two types of views. One view is what's called, these are not my terms, I, just, I don't really like them, the primordialist view. And the primordialist view says that you are born in a geographical region, perhaps with certain physical features, and you're socialized in this, and that, your genes, your race, your place of origin is what determines your ethnicity. So, for example, in modern scholarship, you may see this in a translation in the New Testament. The word eudios, which we've generally translated Jew, is sometimes now translated Judean. And the argument is it should be translated Judean because that's a geographical locale. And those of us that don't like that, including yours truly, say, yeah, but it's, it has no longer tied to geographical region. It has to do with the way people live far more than the geographical region. So, you know, we've got this debate going on about how do you translate Eudias. But that's tied. The other view is a constructionist view. That is to say that ethnicity, and the word ethnicity comes from the Greek word ethnos uh, itself, but it wasn't really formulated, I think it was 1941, when the word ethnicity was first used. So this is a modern construct, it's not an ancient construct, but the constructionist will say that ethnicity can are, are permeable and you can see people can change ethnic identities. And that's pretty much the dominant view of, of many scholars today. Um, the idea is that you, you may not change your race because, I mean, I'm Caucasian. I will always be Caucasian. Uh, that's determined by genes. But you can change an ethnic identity through socialization in some way. You can think about that and ponder it. Do you know anybody who perhaps uh, my great-grandfather on my mother's side came from Sweden? And he was buried with his Swedish Bible in his coffin. And I asked my mom when she told me, why didn't you save that Bible? I said, well, no one spoke Swedish anymore. <laughs> you know, every, everybody just, as soon as they got here, I mean, people did know Swedish for a while, but then they just shifted to English. They were Americanizing. And that's true of, of many people. Well, that's changing a, a form of identity uh, for political and cultural reasons, and probably socioeconomic reasons as well. So this is the way these arguments run, or along these lines. Well, in early Christianity, starting in the second century, you had Christians saying that Christians were a third genos. Now, genos means race. So they'd say there are Greeks, or there are barbarians, and Jews, and there's a third race, Christians. So Aristides, who wrote an apology at 
uh, about in the 120s uh, to the Emperor Hadrian said uh, said this there are three gene and Christians are the third race eventually Eusebius you probably heard of Eusebius who wrote a history of early Christianity said Christians are an ethnos he went all the way but this is now fourth century so what happens is there's there's a development of the understanding of Christianity how do we think of ourselves so now let me knowing that let's back up and now put it together at the beginning Christianity was a Jewish renewal movement but now by the time of Ephesians what's happening well you can't say that anymore because the majority of people who are followers of Jesus are not Jews they're Gentiles so how do we think of them one person one new person and a new temple these are the kinds of images the body of Christ but what does it mean to think in these terms now it's not saying Christians are third genos or their own ethnos not yet that comes later but it's headed in that direction but it's saying there is a new identity and it's based basically on two things loyalty to Jesus Christ and morality that's where Ephesians is coming out it's from then till now it's loyalty to Christ but it's the way you live in loyalty to Christ that determines this identity that's what Ephesians is really saying and I think if we emphasize that we would be far better off than if we emphasize some of the things we have traditionally so there's Ephesians. What do you what do you want to know? What do you want to counter? <laughs> what do you want to ask? Yeah. Um, you said that he, he did away with the law in Ephesians, right? Um, why then in Romans 14 does he just tell people don't keep the law when he's talking to them about Sabbaths and not eating meats and those, as opposed to Leave the guy alone and let him do what his faith dictates for him. Yeah. I, I think Ephesians moves past Paul on this. And I think it's because they're also in a different situation. So in Romans, Paul is worried about the weak and the strong. And the same thing's true in 1 Corinthians. Some differences. But if you have scruples that you cannot do something, I need to respect that. So, um, and, and Paul basically argues that, that my rights are limited by the impact of my actions on you. Mm -hmm. That's Paul's argument. Right. He makes it in Romans and he makes it in 1 Corinthians. Right. Ephesians is writing from the standpoint where no longer are the Jews the majority. The Gentiles are the majority. The law is gone. And the point isn't that you should run roughshod over somebody else's conscience, because that would be in violation of the virtues, mm -hmm. but it's, it's a way of saying that 
this wall that kept us apart doesn't exist any longer. It's down. And I, I think in this way, it's going beyond what you have in Paul. It, I think it's consistent with Paul. I don't think it, it's not at odds with Paul. I think it just moves beyond. But it, the situation is there. <coughs> That's how I read it. To what, to what extent can you detect, excuse me, authorship and everything, that readers of Ephesians might also be Jewish or Jewish Christians? Or do you see pretty much this is geared towards the holy Gentile readership? Well, there, there well could be Jewish Christians, but I think predominantly they're Gentile. The, the, these address, I mean, the statement that we saw in chapter 2 suggests they're not predominantly Jewish. That, that they were because they, they didn't have those things. So if they had been Jewish, I think that might have been recognized. But the description of New Temple, I mean, still using Jewish imagery, so I just yeah, makes me think that he's a, he's at least uh, making connections with, with that group, or or at least still in that mental thought world. He is. Let me let me say one other thing. Read Ephesians and ask how many times does it quote the Old Testament? Not very often. It does. It, it's there, and there are allusions, but it doesn't cite it. It's not nearly as often as Paul. So there's. This is not Marcion, but it's, it's not trying to root the argument in an exposition of Israel's scriptures. But they know those, and what are they reading in their assemblies? Well, I assume they're reading the Septuagint and maybe the letters of Paul. And whole, if they've got a gospel, they would be reading it. We don't know what they had, but I would say they're probably reading letters of Paul and the Septuagint. That's what they would read in their assembly. So they know what these are. Uh, but the argument isn't anchored in it the way it is in Romans, for example. I was also just going to say, uh, I think something else we need to remember is temples weren't, the temple wasn't exclusive to Jerusalem. In the Jews' mind, yes, the temple, but yeah. temples were everywhere. Yeah. And it's imagery they were familiar with because of idol worship. And so it's not really a foreign thought when they're hearing this temple imagery because they were familiar with it as much as the Jews were. Yeah, no. yeah and in fact I mean, I, the NFSO I think is a later scribal edition. I don't read that as part of the original right. part of the text. Uh, there are six different manuscript readings of how Ephesians begins. Uh, but if you think of Ephesus, and one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, which was the temple to Artemis, mm -hmm. all right? It figures pretty largely in Acts 19. Uh, so if you live anywhere, you, your point is very well made. You certainly know, knew what temples were. And I think if you were a Christian, you would have heard of the destruction of Jerusalem. These would have been things that people would have talked about. They would know that because they would, Jesus was a Jew. You know, I mean, when they told stories about Jesus, they would tell stories about Jesus in Israel, I assume. Uh, and knowing that, there would have been some connection, some awareness. But you're right. 
They knew it primarily by the larger world. Yeah, well, that's a, that's a very good question. The auth, there's no polemic, really, in this letter. So the letter is more about this is what we stand for, this is how we understand ourselves, and it doesn't polemicize what if somebody doesn't. It's, that's just not there. Uh, it's there in spades in Colossians. But all of that polemic, you get four warnings about the heresy, whatever it was. I, oh, just one little footnote. I once wrote an article about the Colossian heresy trying to argue for the identity. And I remember reading this essay which chronicled 46 different interpretations of the Colossian heresy. And after I finished finding Synagogue, I thought, uh, I think now there's just 47. <laughs> uh, and there are more than that now. Uh, but they have a very clear, so I think for Ephesians, I, I don't think Ephesians is necessarily, I wouldn't say Ephesians is a universalist, because it can't speak about wrath, can't speak about judgment. It's not that that's completely absent from the text, but the point of the text is to talk about what do we stand for. That is, how do we think of this? That's what it's really trying to do. It's trying to give people a sense of identity uh, who need that. It reminds me of the dead of Yeah. In some ways, you could say that. I, I see why you would say that. Uh, only I would say, I would say Ephesians is loftier. <laughs> so I want to give you one other thought about Ephesians. Uh, that might be helpful to you. I think it's a beautiful text. And it starts with a barakah, uh, which is a blessing. And then there's the prayer report. And then just before you move from the theological argument to the moral exhortations, there's another prayer in 3, 14 through 21. And then when you get to the end of the letter, the very last verses are exhortation to prayer. And I think Ephesians is a text that makes prayer a vehicle for theological reflection. That is, I don't think placing prayers at the beginning, the transition, and the end are an accident. I think it's a way of saying that when we read these texts, and I think the author probably read Paul's letters, and prayed to, to understand those letters and understands that it's in prayer that theological reflection occurs. And so the letter is written with this elevated style as a way of suggesting that. I don't know what your practices are. I, I don't preach regularly anymore. I did for many years. Uh, I will preach this Sunday. <laughs> uh, but um, when I would prepare my sermons, I would start by reading the text, and I would get down on my knees, and I would say a prayer to God, and then ask God to speak through the text so that I could hear it, and I would read the text, and I would get up and do my work on the text. 
That's how I would start. So for me, it's not theoretical, it's actually a practice as well. But I, I do believe this author probably read Paul's letters and prayed about trying to understand them. Just like some of us do, especially before exams for students. Gail? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. I don't know exactly how to say this, but um, what do you think uh, the older Greg Sterling would do when he was a young preacher, if he goes back and he goes to the three congregations, uh, how would you, how would the older Greg Sterling use Ephesians to look at some of the problems of why those churches were different? I mean, since you're, the thesis of the course is can we overcome our differences, is there a way, uh, are there some pragmatic ways of using the text, how you might actually look at real differences that we see? and not just exactly in the terms of theological speculation with the text. Yeah, so um, <coughs> I'm going to start just by telling one story. Uh, we have somebody who knows a good friend of mine, Don White. He's a member of, your, of the church that you serve as a minister, right? No? I'm, I've got you confused. But there was somebody here the other day uh, Don White's in Antioch, California. And so when I was a doctoral student in Berkeley, uh, Don came to me and said, would you like to co-edit the exegete with me? Yeah. And this is an old, you, I mean, you, have, you have to be of a certain vintage and of a certain interest to even know what this is, but uh, I did. And one of the things we did was we got over 100 ministers together in Northern California who were belonged to the main line in the non-institutional, whatever you want to call the other branch, and tried to bring, just to have a conversation together. So I, I think, I mean, if just by virtue of my own career, by going to Berkeley for my doctorate, by being at Notre Dame for 23 years and being at Yale for seven now, I haven't lived in isolation. I, I've lived in a context where I continually rub shoulders with all kinds of other people. So I would say that I would do some things differently. Uh, but I think what I might do differently is I would emphasize far more one of the virtues that we have in our tradition, which is we are all responsible for reading the text, thinking about it, but then living together in love, even when we differ. Amen. And I, I don't think we have emphasized that, and, and I will say that I didn't emphasize that enough uh, as a young man, and I should have emphasized it more. Um, so that, and I think cultivating that approach allows you to have conversations. And we have some tough conversations we need to have. So we're, we're out of time. <laughs> so can all three, three things, if they're waiting, we'll, we'll have to quit. Yeah, they, they are waiting. Yeah, okay. So 
I'm really sorry, because I know there are a number of hands. If you want to talk, I'm happy to talk on the side. But I will say thank you uh, for being here.